Welcome back to True Crime San Antonio. I am just another San Antonio native. This is part two of a story that began with Rosa Maria Rosado. It's come to my attention that I failed to mention Rosa's age in part one of our story. She was 37 years old when her life was taken from her. And my apologies for forgetting to mention this. I'm still learning on the job. And I said it might be messy at the beginning. Uh, but I appreciate any help I get along the way from my listeners. So if you have any questions, comments, or you just want to talk, you can email me at truecrimesanantonio at gmail.com. If you haven't listened to part one of our story, please do so as to not miss anything else. Uh, before I get started, I just want to give a quick shout out to the cover art mural. It was done by Sheik Vega and Nick Soup of Los Otros Murals. These two artists are not only extremely talented and have done over 80 extraordinary pieces of public art, but they have also raised over $40,000 for nonprofits, charities, and art organizations. If you haven't seen their work, please go to their website and check it out. It's absolutely incredible. And if you're looking to gift someone with an awesome birthday present, or maybe you just got a wall that you want to look kick-ass, go to their website for a quote, losotrosmurals.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. Alright, I think we're good. Here we go, part two. Warning, the story depicts accounts of violence, sexual assault, and adult themes that may be found disturbing and unsuitable for some. Listener discretion is advised. and 12-year-old cousins Sarah Gonzalez and Priscilla Almarez were also best friends and excited for a Christmas party the night they ran across a monster who took them away. Although never forgotten, they would always be missed by those who loved them so. It was the evening of December 16, 1994. Sarah and Priscilla, a pair of middle school girls, disappeared while walking together not far from Sarah's residence in the Timber Creek area of San Antonio. At Hernandez's trial, an acquaintance of Sarah testified that December 16th was the last day of school before Christmas break that year. He attended Anson Jones Middle School with her. That same day, she asked him for his phone number, which she wrote down on her hand, and he never saw her again. When I read this, I thought, wow, what a competent young lady to go get that number. And yeah, I don't know the circumstances of their interaction, but I like the version where she walks away like a boss and feeling on top of the world. Another of Sarah's classmates testified that she was in the 7th grade with Sarah. She invited her to a Christmas party at her home on the evening of her disappearance. She asked if she could bring her cousin Priscilla. After school that afternoon, she saw Sarah get off the bus at the corner of Meadowway and Timber Creek at around 5 or 6 p.m. She states later she saw Sarah and Priscilla walking down the to- toward the corner of Meadowway and Marbach, where Church's Fried Chicken's restaurant was located. She gave Sarah a flyer announcing the Christmas party, but neither Sarah or Priscilla ever arrived. The aunt of both Sarah and Priscilla testified she picked up Priscilla from Pease Middle School on December 16th. She dropped Priscilla off at Sarah's home, and after watching her walk in, she left. It's the last time she saw either girl again. 
The girls were expected at their church the next day for caroling. On the following day, December 17th, a group of employees from an automobile dealership and their families were out delivering Christmas baskets to needy families. They unfortunately discovered the lifeless bodies of Sarah and Priscilla lying in the high brush alongside a road in Rodriguez Park. The San Antonio police officer who processed the crime scene testified the girls' bodies were found in the 6500 block of Quito Road. They were lying in the grass along the asphalt and gravel shoulder of a roadway in a trashy area not far from the cul-de-sac. One girl was missing a shoe, and it appeared they had been brought there from another location and dumped. The medical examiner testified both girls' bodies showed signs of severe sexual assault and asphyxiation by strangulation. Both girls had freshly masticated chicken and french fries in their stomachs, most likely from that nearby church's chicken. A San Antonio police sergeant testified that police forwarded DNA samples from two gang members murdered after the discovery of the girls' bodies at the, at the Texas DPS lab in Austin for comparison against the DNA found at the scene. DNA testing employing the techniques available in 1995 managed only to exclude these two gang members and law enforcement officers were investigating. The trail went cold. That is until the DNA testing performed in 2001 showed Hernandez's DNA to be a match. They finally had their killer. The defense's evidence called an acquaintance of Sarah and Priscilla. She testified she saw Sarah and Priscilla at Westlake's Mall on the evening of December 16th. It's located on 410 near Marbach, which is just across the highway from where Sarah lived. In today's time, there's a six-lane highway to get across, so they'd have to go down to Marbach over and back up to Westlake Small. Back in 94, there was still a 410, the highway, but it wasn't nearly as busy. But I can't imagine that they would be crossing the highway through there. So they would have had to have done some walking to get across. She claims that they were in the company of young men, possibly around the age of 19 or 20. She says she had not met them before and it didn't appear that he wanted to look at her. She states later she saw both girls riding in a minivan driven by an unidentified male. A person she said she didn't know later offered her a Polaroid of Priscilla with three guys who were throwing gang signs. On cross-examination, however, she admitted to the police that the date she saw the girls was December 12th, not December 16th, and she didn't even go to the police when she learned of their deaths on December 17th. All in all, she doesn't seem very credible, and no one else had ever claimed that the girls hung around with gang members. A resident of the area from which the girls disappeared testified that on December 16th, he saw Sarah and Priscilla walking down the street and being followed by three young teenage guys who appeared to be harassing the girls. Why would you not intervene if you saw this happening? Why wouldn't you call the cops? Do anything? I mean, maybe it's just me, but I don't get how many people just choose to look the other way. Another witness testified he saw two girls walking during the early morning hours of December 17th near the access road of Loop 410 near Marbach Road. This is the access road and then Marbach where I'm talking about where they had to walk down to come back across to Westlake's Mall. Now, there's no time of death uh, for either Sarah or Priscilla, so to say that it was the girls is hard to say because they were found in the morning hours of December 17th, but this guy is saying he saw them in the early, so I'm, I'm assuming it's like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning that he's saying he saw them. So it's possible it's them, but not entirely sure.
he says the girls appear to be having trouble with a group of guys in a pickup truck with whom the girls were arguing. He claims that Hernandez was not among the men in the pickup truck and he was not certain the two girls he's seen were Sarah Priscilla either way and the guys in the pickup truck were wearing gang attire and it, it just seems to me that these two other girls matched the description of Sarah and Priscilla and either they, they had the gang affiliation or maybe they were just continuously harassed in the same area over this period or they may have been the girls and they were possibly led right into the arms of Hernandez who offered them a false sense of safety like I kind of talked about with Rosa maybe these girls you know they were smart enough to not get taken by the group of guys and got led right into Ramon's arms I mean four or five guys chasing you or one I don't know the verdict came back on October 9th 2001 the jury returned its verdict at finding Hernandez guilty of capital murder as charged in the indictment Santos Mineres and the Saad Cabora were separately convicted and sentenced in connection with the same offense like Hernandez, Mineres was convicted in large part based upon a written statement he gave to police in which he attempted to downplay his role in Rosas' murder and to portray Hernandez and Apicavora as the real instigators of the offense. The punishment phase of Hernandez's capital murder trial commenced on October 10, 2002. The prosecution's evidence included a former neighbor of the Hernandez family. He testified about an incident on April 5, 1986 says his wife returned home and found it had been turned upside down. Law enforcement officers later found his television in Hernandez's kid's room next door, his wife's jewelry box and ice chest in Hernandez's backyard, and his wallet on top of the roof minus all the credit cards. Hernandez, who was a juvenile at the time, was charged with engaging in delinquent conduct for entering a habitation with the intent to commit theft and was placed on juvenile probation for a year. July 18, 1990, Hernandez was convicted of unlawfully carrying a weapon. It was a knife with a blade of more than five inches. The charges stem from his arrest for a felony theft of a vehicle and unlawfully carrying a prohibited weapon, but the felony charge was dismissed. In March of 91, Hernandez pled guilty to three counts of burglary of a habitation with the intent to commit theft. The first burglary occurred on April 24, 1990, when Hernandez entered a home through a kitchen while the owner was at work and stole numerous items. The second burglary occurred on the same day of April 24, 1990, when Hernandez and Mineres together broke down the door of a home. While they were inside attempting to rob, a neighbor called the cops. They fled on foot but were later apprehended with items from the burglaries in their car. An eyewitness, the neighbor, and several law enforcement officers testified about the incident. The third burglary, who were once neighbors of Hernandez and possibly the worst of them all, testified, testified about an incident in January of 91. Hernandez invited a male neighbor to his apartment to watch a porn video. Yeah, you heard me right. Hernandez then left his apartment on a pretext and locked the male neighbor inside his apartment. He then went to the same neighbor's apartment and sexually assaulted his wife in her bed while her one-year-old child slept beside her. He, he literally has no conscience. She testified that Hernandez had been friends with her for many years. Hernandez only pleaded guilty to the burglary of a habitation, but he was labeled a sex offender. A San Antonio police officer who responded to that rape call arrested him on January 12, 1991. 
He testified Santos Mineros was also present at the time of his arrest, but he gave the name Ernest Perez and left the scene. I'm not entirely sure why he did this because I don't think Ramon was an ex-convict at the time, which, have, which would have been a violation of Santos' parole, but I don't think he faced any consequences for it either way. Nothing that I could find. Hernandez was sentenced to 18 years in prison. By the way, that sentence would have had him in prison until 2009 if you're keeping count. He was paroled after just three years. You angry yet? Five law enforcement officers testified about an incident on March 15, 1994. Hernandez was arrested and charged with a burglary after him and Santos were observed robbing a home. Hernandez then led police on a high-speed pursuit, high pursuit chase, ending when he crashed his car into a drainage ditch. The two of them tried to flee on foot, but Hernandez was apprehended. I'm assuming they both were. The charges were dismissed for insufficient evidence. What the actual... How, how could you not find enough evidence? I'm not entirely sure. I, I tried to find information on this. I couldn't find it. Although I'm, I'm hoping the cops just beat the hell out of the two of them and then decided to drop the charges because of it. Yeah, that sounds a little bitter. Four Bear County Adult Detention Center employees testified about an incident on August 15, 2002. While housed in the Bear County Jail, Hernandez placed a makeshift dummy in his bunk and went missing from his cell. How exactly does this happen? Anyways, Hernandez was later found hiding in another cell where sheriff's deputies discovered a carved out hole through a cinder block and bricks leading to the parking lot of the facility. Hernandez had also attempted to carve around the toilet and ventilation and intercom systems in his own cell. A piece of steel plate from the intercom system, big enough to be a weapon, was missing. Regarding the incident, Hernandez made the statement, I fooled you too, right? Thankfully, they got him before he could get out and hurt anyone else. A psychiatrist who interviewed Hernandez testified he possessed normal intelligence and had a normal family development until the age of 15. Where in 1986, Hernandez's father was murdered, leaving him full of guilt and experienced depression and mental health problems thereafter. Hernandez's mother testified he was urging his father to come inside when a crowd approached and one of them fired on him and shot and killed his dad. Hernandez held him in his arms until he breathed his last. He was then diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, anxiety disorder, a major depressive disorder, and subsequently developed significant symptoms. He entered treatment and remained intermittently on medication for the next 15 years. He attempted suicide twice and was committed in 1987. Among the medications prescribed were Prozac, Clonopin, Thorazine, and Trazodone. Uh, Hernandez had been chronically depressed for many years. The physician found no indication he was malingering, which means he wasn't faking the symptoms, and it was unusual for persons with antisocial personality to be clinically depressed because such persons typically lack a conscience, typically. On cross-examination, however, the same physician testified that Hernandez got a girlfriend pregnant at 15, a different girl pregnant at 16, and of course a cell was pregnant at the time of Rosso's murder. He was found not to be mentally or intellectually challenged. Uh, he was diagnosed in 94 and 96 with the antisocial personality disorder. He had been through the juvenile system and was on probation prior to his father's murder. His mental health indicated he tended to blame others for his own conduct. He even told one of his treating doctors he liked to fight. 
He was found by one interviewer to be manipulative and headstrong, and he admitted to using marijuana, LSD, and alcohol all before the age of 16. He had a long history of not caring for his children and not paying child support. He experienced significant periods of unemployment and was frequently absent from work when he was employed. Several of Hernandez's friends and family testified to his good character and personality traits. Uh, they, uh, I'm not going to read them all, but they all said basically the same thing, that you know he was good to them when he was younger, uh, but upon his father's death, he started drinking, doing drugs, burglaries, hanging out with Santos. It all went hand in hand. Uh, yeah, I think he even went to Palo Alto College for a little bit, but dropped out because of the drug and alcohol problems he was suffering from and I mean he could blame everything on his father dying but I mean he had issues he was already on probation uh, as a teenager before his father's death so he was having issues before so to blame everything on his father's death to me is just moot in his affidavit uh, Hernandez states his trial counsel never advised him of his right to testify during the hearing on his motion to suppress his written statement he says he was prescribed Clonavin for many years to help him sleep, and in October of 2000, a new physician began reducing his Clonavin prescription, which then he supplemented by gaining some from his uncle. During this time, he says he would run out of Clonavin halfway through his 30-day prescription for many months, which is a ton to go through. And by March of 2001, he was no longer able to supplement from his uncle. And he was unsuccessfully, he unsuccessfully tried to get his doctor to reconsider t uh, taking them off him completely. And at the time of his arrest, he hadn't taken any in three days and was going cold turkey from withdrawal. He began experiencing panic attacks as soon as Detective Carrion started his interrogation, he says. He claims Carrion repeatedly threatened him with the death penalty unless he cooperated. He refused, he says Carrion refused to get him medications unless he gave a statement. And when he, Hernandez says he invoked his right to counsel, within the first five minutes that Carrion just smiled and asked him to confirm a self-statement. And he says after five hours, he finally honored his request for an attorney and terminated the interview. Uh, obviously, uh, Carrion denies all this, and it's more hearsay than anything else. I, don't, I, looked, I couldn't find any video or audio, visual or audio proof to back up either of their statements. Hernandez says he was then taken to the Bear County Adult Detention Center where he received Prozac from his mom after she delivered it to the jail and finally booked after 2 a.m. on April 7th. He began to grow suicidal and couldn't sleep and sometime around noon he told an officer he wanted to kill himself. When he was taken to see the social worker he became panicky and he told her about his need for medication and that he was going crazy that he needed to see a doctor because he needed to quote get all these things off my chest. He told her he hadn't slept in days and he had been experiencing panic attacks. And when the social worker informed him she couldn't furnish him with the medications, he became hysterical and demanded that she call a doctor. She left and brought the floor sergeant, Contreras, who informed Hernandez that he needed to talk to an investigator, not a doctor. And when Hernandez was later taken down to an interrogation room and saw Detective Carrion, he became frightened and told Carrion she wasn't supposed to be killed and that it was only supposed to be a robbery. He claims he was sick and tired and he just gave a statement because he feared that if he refused to do so, it would result in him not getting to see a doctor or any medication for his panic attacks. 
he says that the neither the doctors, the social worker, the detention officer would get him a doctor, and neither of his trial counsels ever asked him about the circumstances taken around his the surrounding of his taking statement, and they never discussed with him whether he should testify at the hearing on his motion to suppress. Uh, frankly, I only wanted to go over these claims because they are the perfect fit for an habitual liar. He's using whole truths where they can't be refuted, half-truths where it can only benefit him, and outright, outright lies where his word is against his co-conspirators. Um, my opinion, I'm glad the detective Karen pushed him as hard as he did. I mean, they, they already, they knew they had their guy, they just needed to push him and get him, get a statement, and whether he didn't, you know, end in, ended in five minutes or five hours, we don't know, okay, we really don't know, um, but at this point, if he hadn't pushed him as hard as he did, I don't know if the evidence enough was able to get a capital murder charge against him, truly. Uh, Detective Carrion, Detective Kellogg, the social worker, and Deputy Contreras all testified to the contrary of Hernandez's claims, obviously. And then they had an array of psychologists uh, and doctors who went up and talked about the, the use of the clonopin, uh, the drugs that he was on, and, you know, how long he was on them. And that basically the Prozac that they gave him should have been enough to calm him down. So anything beyond that was more him panicking from his situation and yeah the, the, there probably was some underlying things going on there you know him going with the withdrawal and such um, but nevertheless Hernandez was convicted and he was sentenced to death in October of 2002 by a jury in the 175th district court of Bear County Texas on March 23, 2005 the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed his conviction and sentence on direct appeal on September 10, 2008, after the trial court held an evidentiary hearing, the CCA adopted all recommended findings and conclusions, uh, save those regarding ineffective assistance of appellate counsel claim and denied habeas corpus relief. They basically found that his ineffective assistance of uh, counsel was un unmerited, basically. Uh, on May 13, 2011, the Federal District Court denied habeas corpus relief and certificate of appealability. Now, this was before not only his conviction, but his um, sentence of death as well. And finally, on March 1, 2012, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals also denied. That's it. He was done. Now, after this, I, you know, I, I thought, man, th there's no way that this story could get worse. Truly, I, I did. And after San Antonio police linked Hernandez to Rosado, Sarah, and Priscilla, Bear County authorities, I'm sorry, not Bear, Bandera County authorities revealed that Ramon Hernandez was the prime suspect in the deaths of 15-year-olds Laura Gomez and Jennifer Taylor. Prosecutors pointed to Sarah and Priscilla's cases to show a pattern. Laura Gomez and Jennifer Taylor, both 15, when reported missing two days apart from each other in November of 1994. That was just a month before Sarah and Priscilla. Their bodies weren't found until April of 1995. An autopsy couldn't determine sexual assault, but they had been strangled according to the medical examiner. Now, I, I've looked into these cases and I, I couldn't find anything else about them because there isn't anything out right now. 
and maybe there won't ever be. The Bear County First, Adis First Assistant District Attorney Cliff Herberg hoped that the investigator could get Hernandez to talk about these unsolved cases, but there was no clarification if Hernandez ever acknowledged any involvement. And again, searching for any information on these girls' deaths has only left more questions than answers. I mean, was he responsible for taking these girls' lives as well? We'll, we'll never really know. I, I almost hope, and that sucks, but I, I hope that they did link them, that they found some kind of DNA evidence and, and they linked them to it just for the sake of the families, you know? That, that they went to them and told them, hey, we linked this man he's already in custody facing the death penalty we're not gonna we're gonna close the cases and that'll be the end of that and leave them with what little piece they have left no need to bring it back up in the public spotlight but some part of me almost feels like they haven't because they never found that and the worst part is that it could be somebody else altogether Nevertheless, on November 14, 2012, Ramon Hernandez at the age of 41 was strapped to the gurney just after 6 p.m. He began his last statement at 6.11. I'm sorry for putting you all through this, he said while looking at his brother. I'm very sorry for all the pain. I love them all. Tell mom, everybody. Priscilla's sister and father attended the execution as well as Rosa's family. After Hernandez was pronounced dead at 6.38, about 26 minutes after the drug began flowing in his arms, Priscilla's sister said she had hoped Hernandez would have apologized directly to the families of his victims, but instead just focused on his brother. She also stated the family didn't find any closure in the execution. Quote, We're not cruel people. We don't want to wa have to watch somebody die. It doesn't give us happiness at all. If anything, I felt sorrow for his family. They'll have to feel what we felt. Rosa's family, her two sisters, and brother-in-law didn't speak after. Santos Mineros was found guilty and sentenced to death on March 20, 2003. His appeals were denied thereafter, and six days after he was transferred from death row, the 40-year-old Mineros died on January 14, 2012 in Galveston. His cause of death was considered due to septic shock and multiple organ failure. Still not sure if he got the better deal in dying before getting the needle, no matter how you feel about it. Acel Abdugavora was convicted of capital murder in 2005 and was sentenced to life in prison. The Fourth Court of Appeals overturned a conviction in 2007. Get this. After they, they, they noted that Judge Roman exchanged notes with Prosecutor Robert McClure during jury selection and allowed him to use statements the defendant made during plea negotiation. I mean, this part, it straight pisses me off because it's happened time and time again uh, where the prosecution has used a statement they know they can't use against the defendant because it would cause a judgment to be overturned. I mean, the judge with all absolution should know this part. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like law 101, right? I mean, you can't use something that somebody just tells you in in privacy or, you know, without having their attorney or someone present or they even say when they have conversations that this will not be held in court and then to for the judge and you know kings of their court to go and say yep you can use it just going to get overturned when it gets to a higher court that's exactly what happened here Abtik Vavora at the age of 37 year old she agreed to reduce charges from capital murder to murder and it will 
ultimately cap her maximum possible prison stay at 28 years for her role. I'm not sure if that's justice or not. This is clearly a case in which absence of an impartial trial judge on the bench infected the entire trial process, robbing Abdika Babor of her basic protections and undermining the ability of the criminal trial to reliably serve its function as a vehicle for the determination of guilt or innocence. Justice Rebecca Simmons wrote that. That's a smartest slap in the face FU statement I've ever read. Remember, Abdika Babor was pregnant with Hernandez's baby in 2001? Where her child now lives with her older stepsister in Kazakhstan. And that, that baby would be about 19 now. Upon release from prison, Abdikavora will face deportation back to Kazakhstan. How was Hernandez allowed to be on the streets just after three years of the assault of his neighbor? And six months after that car crash with the police? How many times was he caught with Mineres? And why didn't anyone check on that? Could the death of those two young girls and mother have been prevented? And what about the cold cases linked to him of the teenage girls in Bandera County? I feel like there's just so many ways these girls' lives could have been saved, but maybe that's just optimism. I don't know. There's just got to be a better way. May the memories of Laura Gomez, Jennifer Taylor, Sarah Gonzalez, Priscilla Almarez, and Rosa Maria Rosado live through their families as they rest in peace. And that's it. That's the end of our story. I know it was hard. It was hard for me too. Um... I've been thinking about what to do at the end of these episodes because, I mean, you get to the end of it and, I mean, there's no there's no happy ending. There never will be, truly. But when I think about these cases, uh, the only thing I can put in my head and think about is what do I teach my kids when they grow up? What do I teach them about taking care of themselves and taking care of others and making sure that they're safe? I mean, I, I hate it, but we can't sugarcoat it anymore. I mean, I don't think we ever could. There are bad people in this world that want to do harm. There are, you know. Uh, if you have girls and, and, and they're teenage girls that are growing up, I mean, you worry about them all the time. There's no way you can't, you know, and you can't be with them all the time. Uh, I found this app where you download it on your phone and say you're walking from a you know at night from in a dark area and you know sometimes you there's nobody you can walk with well on this app you open it up and you hold down a button and you hold this button down until you get into your car and you're safe or secure and as soon as you let go of the button you have to enter a password it gives you about i think 10 seconds to enter a password and if you do not push in this password it sends an alert I think to your contacts as well as 911. I think they'll call you and if you don't answer, boom, they get your GPS location and they send a unit or something. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, I haven't looked it up completely. Uh, it's called Noonlight, N-O-O-N-L-I-G-H-T, Noonlight. And I, I recommend everybody get it. I, I think it's free, which is amazing. Like something like that I'd pay for. It, you're gonna take care of my babies when I can't that's amazing thank you to them for that because again we can't always be there i i, I want to teach my kids self-defense i'm going to teach them to watch out for themselves and their friends and to make sure they're always safe because we can't always ensure this but at the same time 
what we can do for ourselves and for people struggling with mental health problems is, is take the time and you know find them the help and if you can't do it yourself you help somebody else in, in another regard whatever way you can I feel like for Santos or, or especially Ramon at a young age like if somebody had showed him love instead of, of whatever else he got instead of pumping him full of medications they tried to help him in other ways I'm not a mental health doctor I don't I don't know won't ever claim to know all about any of that I just know that there has to be better ways now that we can do this so that a kid out there right now who's suffering like Ramon did doesn't have to go down that same path that he can come back and if you are out there and you're suffering please know there's somebody that you can talk to you were never completely alone you're never completely alone I I, I, I I don't know this for a fact but I can guarantee in my capacity my community my the people I know there's not one person who hasn't suffered from one thing in mental health department I mean there isn't that we were human we feel we love we hurt that there's no way that there's one person out there who hasn't suffered from one thing so you're never alone there's somebody who will understand what you're going through I guarantee you reach out that's the hardest part reach out you can do it anonymously I know there's phone numbers I'll, I'm gonna start looking for them and putting them up on my show notes I just feel like we have to take care of each other best we can and that's the only way that we can get through our days and, and continue to, to push through honestly that's just how I feel I want to give credit where credit is due because um, going through all these stories there are so many different websites I'm going to put them on my show notes but one in particular is Michelle Mondo from mysanantonio.com she's the one that went to the the day of the executions and got the quotes from the families which there's no way that could have been easy she did the hard work I just put it into podcast format so thank you to her for all her hard work and her brilliant writing so that's it I want to thank you for tuning in I appreciate the listen this has been True Crime San Antonio and I am just another San Antonio native hoping to see us through take care